Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today I'm very excited to introduce Jay Onright, the host of SportsCenter on TSN. Jay, not to, to make you feel too old, but uh, you were part of my morning routine all my childhood and uh, and still to this day. So thanks so much for taking the time and uh, coming on. It's my pleasure, and uh, it's okay. I, I get that uh, all the time these days that I'm uh, that people grew up with me, so uh, I'm used to I'm used to everyone making me feel uh, making me feel old. <laughs> it's okay. I I have gray hairs too, so we're we're one and the same. I'm I'm heading there as well. Um, <laughs> I I want to first ask you a bit about your career and 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 for you, Jay. When did you first think you might want to pursue a career in, in sports journalism and media? You know, I started to watch. Um, you know, I, I kind of watched sports all through my life as a kid, but really it was probably around junior high, maybe when I was 14, 15, that I really started to love highlight shows specifically. Okay. It was an amazing era for highlight shows. It was uh, it was the time of uh, Chris Berman doing NFL primetime mm-hmm. on Sunday nights, and we got that on TSN. Uh, CNN had its own highlight show at the time in the 80s. It was called CNN Sports Tonight. And it was so good. It was a half hour, just the concise rip through highlights. All the anchors were really polished and great. Fred Hickman and Nick Charles were kind of the famous ones. And then locally, we had Darren Detition hosting our version of Sportsline in Edmonton. Um, so much like, you know, people my age grew up with Jim Taddy and Mark Hebsher. I grew up with Dutchie. And, you know, just watching all those guys, it just seemed like such a fun job. And specifically hosting a highlight show. You know, I really, um, I played a lot of sports in high school, so I, I didn't really have time to watch as much, as many games as I would have liked. So so the highlight shows at the time, sort of a pre-internet era, were kind of a lifeline, right? Because you had no other way to, to get the highlights. So I loved those shows, and probably around junior high was when I sort of started to realize that that was something I wanted to do, but I was still a little too chicken to actually go do it right away out of high school. So I went into a pre-pharmacy. My family had a pharmacy. So I went into a pre-pharmacy out of high school for two years. But after a year of it, I just knew it wasn't what I really wanted to do. And I read a book called What Color Is Your Parachute? <laughs> and it's still uh, published today. It's a great book. It's it's a book for people who don't really know what they want to do with their life. Um, and it helps you find out what exactly that might be. So I suspected I wanted to be a sportscaster. So in the book, it suggests that if there's something you want to do in life, you should go talk to someone who's already doing that thing and ask them about it. You know, try to find out about the job, find out what it's all about and see if, you know, it really is the job for you. And then in the process of, of talking to a person like that, you make your first contact in the industry, right? So that's exactly what I did. I went and spoke with, um, I went to the local broadcasting school in Edmonton, Nate, and they suggested I go talk to a young producer at Global in Edmonton named Pat Kiernan. He was in his 20s, and he was already producing the 10 o'clock news and doing a, a money segment. And he was great. You know, I was going to U of A, I was taking sciences, and I, I asked if I could meet him for coffee, and he said, sure. And I said, you know, I want to get into the business. He said, you can come in and hang out in the newsroom anytime wow. you want. Um, he said, I can't pay you, but if you want to come in, uh, I can teach you how to write news. I can teach you, you know, all about how, how a television newsroom works. And uh, that's exactly what I did. So for my second year at U of A, I was, I was there all the time. 
and uh, I just fell in love with it. And specifically, I saw, you know, Dutchie, who was working still in the sports department at the time. And, you know, it just looked like he was having so much fun. And it just, you know, got me even more excited about the possibility of going into broadcasting. So I applied to get into Ryerson. And miraculously, I got in. And um, I, I uh, was in radio and television arts. And it all kind of took off from there. And and with that, obviously, you, you went to TSN and you've been hosting Sports Center for so long. Maybe just tell us a little bit about when you got started at, at, T, at doing Sports Center. what kind of your process was like and, and, and what is it to this day? And, and what do you try to bring to Sports Center that made you so successful? Well, uh, you know, what's funny is, you know, I think a lot of people think that, you know, I started doing the show and I was, you know, always kind of like, you know, cracking jokes and loose, but it was totally the opposite. I, I was, I was wound tight as a drum. I, I did the show pretty straightforward at first, and um, and sort of my personality came out gradually. You know, and that's really the way I, I when I, you know people ask me now, you know, how do you become better at being on air? I always say it's it's very simple. It's reps. You know, it's like anything in life. You know, you just have to do it over and over. So when I started, I was a bit nervous. I was lucky enough, my first on-air job was at Global in Saskatoon. And at the time, they still had a half-hour highlight show after the late news uh, called Sportsline, which, you know, we had here, too, in Toronto. And it was incredible for me right out of school because you're doing a half-hour highlight show every night. You're getting those reps that you need. So it was a great starting point for me. And then by the time I got to TSN, it was a lot more comfortable. And I was lucky because my boss, I had worked at TSN behind the scenes while going to Ryerson. I lucked into an internship, and then they kept me around. So for my third and fourth year at Ryerson, I worked at TSN as a freelancer. It was just great. And while I was there, the producer of the 6 o'clock sports center uh, we hit it off. And when I returned to TSN as an anchor, he was running TSN. So oh. it was very fortuitous for me because, you know, he was someone who trusted me and would allow me to have a little bit of, uh, a little bit of rope <laughs> to, uh, experiment and, and try new things. And that's exactly what I did. And so then I got paired up with Dan and, uh, it just, we just had very similar sensibilities about, you know, what kind of show we wanted to do. We wanted to do a show that felt like you were just hanging out with your buddies and it was very casual, different than other sports casts, you know, that were a bit more formal. Um, and it just worked, you know, and, and again, it was really because we had a boss who believed in us and really liked us. And, and his philosophy was very simple. He said that, you know, I'm going to put you guys on, on the late night show and then it's going to loop all morning. And so kids are going to grow up with you. And then when they go away to college, then they're going to watch you at night after they get home from the bars. And he was absolutely right. It all happened exactly as he said it would. And uh, it's a big reason why we were so successful that he had that foresight to know that that was a perfect time slot for us. Even to the point that when we returned to TSN after being in Los Angeles for a few years, you know, they basically offered us any time slot we wanted. Wow. And we just said, let's go back to the old time slot because that's where people like to see us. And if we're on during the day, um, you know, maybe our lives are a little easier. You know, we don't have to work the late nights, but at the same 
same time, I don't think that many people would have seen us. So, you know, it's just turned out to be a really great fit for us and a great fit for me now doing the, so- the show solo to, you know, have this sort of late night audience that stuck with us all these years and then this early morning audience that's kind of grown up with us. And with that, how do you prepare for a late night show? Because especially like Sports Center, where you need to know so many sports and it's essentially daily. Like, how do you prepare for a show? Give us a little bit of an insight into maybe a day in the life of of Jay uh, behind the scenes. Yeah, it's it's pretty simple. I mean, I'm lucky. One of the things I did when I was behind the scenes at TSN is I was a highlight writer. And so, you know, every night I'd write two different sets of highlights for two games and there's a bunch of us who did the same thing and those highlight scripts are pretty basic you know they're they're very meat and potato scripts kind of getting you from a to b uh so i have a lot of great writers who help me in that sense uh the the sort of personality comes out when i ad lib off of those scripts you know so but in terms of preparation it's really just you know, keeping up with sports in any capacity throughout the day, whether it's Twitter, whether it's sports radio, whether it's podcasts, uh, and just being on top of it. And then at about five o'clock, uh, my crew and I, my producer, me, and all our whole crew, we have a uh, a meeting, and we go over, you know, what's going to be on the show tonight, who our guests will be, what will be leading the show, you know, what sports are happening that night. So just so I have an idea, you know, where we're at. And then a couple hours later, I get into work because that meeting is over the phone and uh, get makeup, head in and start writing my on cam. So everything in terms of me being on camera is written by me. It always has been. And uh, I imagine it always will be. And so I, I write the show and then it's a series of interviews for me right now. So you know, since Dan left, the show has become very interview heavy. And so that's changed sort of the approach a little bit in that, you know, I'll get questions uh, from a producer, sort of suggested questions, and I can go off those questions, or I can just ad lib and do what I want. And I like a little bit of a mix of both. You know, I find if a producer puts together a good list of questions, sometimes it's just sim- as simple as that to, to go with those questions. and. Mm-hmm. And they're well-researched. But I often find that there's one or two questions I want to throw in myself just as you go through the process of doing the interview. And uh, so we, we probably pre-tape three or four interviews before the show. And then, uh, and then we'll go live at midnight and we'll start ripping through the show. And um, some of it will be on tape. Some of it will be live. And then at one o'clock, assuming everything is, is done and okay, then we're, uh, then we're out of there. So it's much better than it used to be. We used, Dan and I, when we started, did the show from 2 to 3 a.m. Wow. And uh, it was, yeah, in hindsight, I still can't believe we did the show that late. But that's, crazy. Uh, that's when we did it, and we did it that way for a long time. So doing it from 12 to 1 now feels like uh, feels like a dream, basically. <laughs> it's, it's great. I, I want to go off kind of you, you were, you've you been known for being so funny. I, I, I don't want to imitate you, but Bobrovsky and Canadian and all that uh, that you've you've brought to the broadcast for that how much of that is ad lib for you and and uh kind of do you work on jokes I know you did stand up for or I think a little bit as a a younger person so just maybe tell us about the behind the scenes and how you try to bring the humor to the broadcast 
Yeah, it's it's all ad libbed. Uh, all that stuff is ad libbed, um, and you know, it's it's picking your spots, right? It's not as my old boss used to say. It's not the ha ha ha. It's not a comedy club. Uh, so you can't, the whole show can't just be us ripping jokes, but I found when we started, Dan and I, that it was like, we would push it a little bit, try to add more and more jokes. Our boss would be like, dial it back a little bit. And we almost like, kind of, it was like, a um, we were almost workshopping how we wanted to do the show long term, And eventually we found like a nice mix, you know, like a nice mix of, of jokes and, a nice mix of serious information, but for the most part, all the jokes are ad-libbed and, uh, and it's all, you know, everything kind of has a purpose. Like the Canadian thing is something that my friends and I used to do when we were in high school. And so if it would be, um, and it wouldn't just be an athlete, like it would be a Canadian actor or something in a movie, you know, we'd just be like, Oh, Michael J. Fox, Canadian, you know, like that, like, (laughs) So that's kind of where that comes from. And all the jokes kind of come from places like that. You know, either it's my past or or something as simple as the fact that I thought Bobrovsky just sounded like the name of a renegade cop in a 1970s TV show who had gone rogue and had to be reined back in by his tough but well-meaning sergeant. Um, yeah, so somehow that turned out to be just a, a huge hit. For, uh, for whatever reason, and people loved it. So, yeah, it's just, it's really all about just allowing my personality to come out and just be who I am and, and also embracing the mistakes too, you know. The whole you blew it thing that we do at the end of the show stemmed from uh, the fact that we were doing the show so late from 2 to 3 in the morning. And if we made mistakes, which we always did, we'd have to go back and fix them before yeah. the morning the morning show ran, right? So it we would be keeping the crew later and you know, we just sort of were like, at some point we're like, listen, we're not perfect broadcasters. We're never going to be. Why don't we just, instead of correcting all these mistakes, why don't we just write them down and at the end of the show, confess to them like we're in confession or something. (laughs) And it just, you know, people like that too. And I think the, the, the angle, especially that people like is that, and that we may be brought to the table is, is that sort of idea that, that you're not going to be a perfect broadcast. Everything was so polished in the seventies and eighties and, and even the nineties, you know, and, and we're just not those people. And it used to frustrate me, you know, I used to get upset if I would make mistakes because I hated to let the crew down and stuff. And now I'm just like, you know, whatever, got to embrace it. No one's perfect life, you know, life's not perfect. So uh, yeah, it's funny how that, you know, went from something that we just decided to do so we could get out of there early to being uh, one of the most popular things we do on the show. How, how do you draw the line, especially with your comedy, where you might go over it? I know you have a Merrick Malik story where he, he got upset at you for saying something from your book, which I, everyone should check out. I've really been loving your book. But how do you draw that line on, on the sports, on the broadcast with your jokes as well? Yeah, I think there's so many things you got to be careful about, um, you know, nothing about anyone's appearance, never anything about, you know, kid, never making fun of kids in any capacity. Um, you know, there's just basic lines you don't cross. Um, and even, even with athletes in general, I just, I, I don't, I try not to make fun of anybody. Um, I try to make sure that if the joke is on anyone, it's on me. Okay. And I'm, I'm the one taking the brunt of it. Um, 
But, you know, I think the line, you know, after doing this type of thing for 25 years, you know, I kind of know where the line is now, you know, and I know where, you know, where I have to pull back a little bit and where I can hit the gas pedal a little bit. Um, so stuff like, you know, the Gary Bettmans of the world, NHL team owners, just fat cats, right? Like yeah. guys who deserve to, to have their, uh, be poked and prodded yeah. a little bit. Um, they're, you know, to me, they're fair game, but, uh, but in general, you know, I, I probably try to joke about athletes a lot less, especially after the, the Merrick Malik incident. <laughs> I, I, I want to, you, you described it a little bit, but what advice would you give to, to people in trying to go into the sports media industry, uh, if, in your opinion, Jay? It's hard right now. It's so hard. I, I've been, you know, we had layoffs last week yeah. at our network and, and it's funny that you asked me that Alex, because a lot of people have at our network who are still around, those of us who are still around have really been talking about that. You know, like mm. when young people ask us what, you know, advice, like you just asked me, it's getting harder and harder for me to recommend it as a career professional fashion because it's so volatile now and and it's um it's not going to change unfortunately you know like the the belt tightening never seems to stop and you know it's a constant sort of like thing where the the product it it feels like in my opinion it suffers because so many good people are being let go so many Mm -hmm. experienced people the people we lost last week were all like 20 30 year veterans of the industry um not new people right so you know, I think from a from a parent company perspective, they just see a number, you know, and and but these people are super valuable to us. So that's a long winded way of me saying I would never discourage anyone from pursuing their dream. Of course, you know, I, I really and this business has obviously been great for me, um, but I do have a hard time, mm. you know, fully recommending this industry to people at this point. Um just because of the volatility it's it's a sad situation but um but it's just more you know it's just the reality unfortunately uh, i want to go from that to, to a high note and i want to also flip this podcast a little bit from your, your show where you interview people about their sports opinions so i want to ask you a little bit about your own and the first one is is a fun little question and for you jay if you were gary bettman for one day what rule would you change well, the first thing I would do is move the Arizona Coyotes to Houston uh, or Kansas City. Uh, I would not, I would not uh, implement any rule changes before I immediately moved that franchise out of that market because it's just bewildering to me that that the other owners haven't squeezed Gary and, and told him enough's enough, especially after this recent vote in Tempe that voted down a new arena. Um, rule changes? That's a great question. Um, in the NHL, I'd have to think about that a little bit, but I generally like the way the game is right now. I don't have Mm. too much of a problem with it. Um, and I even don't hate the shootout. I know some people would be like, well, I get rid of the shootout, but I think the problem is, and the reason the shootout works in the NHL and the reason it works in soccer is that. You know, in the end, it's a definitive way to get to determine a winner in a short period of time. And 
when it comes to, you know, one thing I might say is I might change the start times of games a little bit. Mm. Like I, I might start to insist that teams start games at seven o'clock local and yeah. no seven, no more seven thirties, definitely no eight locals. Um, it's just too late for kids. Like it's, you know, not just to go to the games, but to watch at home. And I feel like you're going to lose a generation of kids here who just aren't going to be able to stay up late enough to watch a whole game, right? So uh, my daughter loves watching games, and it's always like, okay, you can watch the first two periods. And she's always like, well, then what, what good is that? You know, I'm not even going to find out who's, who's winning. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that might be the one thing I would change is that I would start to uh, insist on 7 p.m. local starts and absolutely no later than that. And I want to go to to Toronto and the Leafs because they've had a crazy off season. They have a lot of things they have to clear up this off season. What do you make of of the Leafs going into to next year? And would you keep the core four if you were Bradshaw living? Well, I think first of all, I think that was a really great hire for the Leafs. I think he, you know, I, I know a lot of the a lot of Leafs Nation was I don't know if the word un underwhelmed is probably the word I would use seem to be underwhelmed by it. But to me, he's a, he's a rock solid GM. He's uh, liked by everybody in the industry. And quite frankly, last summer when Johnny Gaudreau and Matthew Kachuk both decided to leave Calgary, I thought he did incredibly well considering he was backed into a corner. Um, so, uh, you know, I think they've got a great GM there and, and what I keep the core four together. no, but at the same time, I don't. I could see a scenario, or I feel like the more likely scenario is that they will be kept together for at least the first part of this year. Because I think for Brad, he really wants to get an assessment of what exactly he has with this team uh, before making any sudden rash movements. And he alluded to that in his press conference when he was hired. Right? He said, "I'm not going to." You know, it looks. You know, headlines are great and it looks good, but at the end, uh, you know it it's tough to find talent, you know, on the core four is it's all about talent. Does it work together? And is it a, is it a Stanley cup winning team? Maybe it's not, but you know, maybe you wait and maybe you, you assess maybe down the road if there's something out there for you, but I could see a scenario where like a Mitch to me, Marner is the, is the most likely trade chip. You'd love to trade. You know, I know everyone says you'd love to trade Tavares, but I think he's been sensational. You know, he's had oh, okay. great years. He's just, you know, he's not as young as the other guys, and I get that. He's not as uh, fast as the other guys, but, I mean, the numbers are still pretty impressive. Um, so, yeah, I would probably trade Marner. I think you get the most return for him, and I think, you know, in the postseason, it's tougher for smaller players like that. I just think it is. Um, I think they could use a stud defenseman, so – if you could do a Marner for Brett Pesci type swap, I think it would be, yeah. in my opinion, that would be hard to turn down. Um, but I know a lot of teams would love to have a Brett Pesci. So who knows? I guess we'll see. And and I want to go to the Sens uh, because I'm here in Ottawa and they had a chaotic sale. Maybe just what do you make of them finally having new ownership that seems sustainable? And maybe how bright do you think the future is in, in Ottawa? I think... The future is absolutely golden for this team because, quite frankly, it seemed like Eugene Melnick, you know, while he was alive, he was absolutely never going to sell this team. And he was just 
you know, God rest his soul. I don't like to speak ill, Ill of yeah. the dead, of course, but, but, you know, he was running it into the ground in a lot of ways. You know, he was alienating, you know, the fact that Daniel, I always say the fact that Daniel Alfredson lives in the city of Ottawa and was not involved with the team in any capacity was just bewildering to me how that yeah. could even possibly be the greatest player in the history of your franchise. And it's not like he moved back to Sweden. He stayed in Ottawa, raised his kids there. Like, he should be the president of the team. End of story, right? Like, it's it's just, it's baffling, right? And it's baffling that Melnick didn't try to mend the fences. Obviously, Alfredson was really upset about how it ended contract-wise as a player, and I don't blame him one bit. But, you know, at some point, you got to try to mend that fence, right, if, if you're Eugene, and he just didn't do that. So, to me, one of the best things about Andlauer coming in is that now this opens the door for Alfredson to come back you know, for Wade Redden, for Chris Phillips, for all these guys to be involved. And for a fan base like Ottawa, there's just a warm, fuzzy feeling, you know, when, yeah. when great players are, are, are back and involved in the team in some way. And then, you know, there's lots to talk about. I think Pierre Dorian's done a terrific job, but seems like, you know, maybe his time is, is up for whatever reason. So, you know, if they go out and hire someone like a Steve Stales, I think that's terrific, but, now, I love the players they have now. I love the enthusiasm they have. The fan base deserves so much better. And so now just to have that financial stability, um, you know, and hopefully this will lead to a brand new arena downtown. Yeah. Um, man, it's exciting. It's got to be so exciting to be a Sens fan because even when Mr. Melnick passed away, you know, I know his daughters initially said they wanted to, to keep the team. And, and you know, I was – I thought, well, maybe that'll be a bit better, but I, I do think this is a much, much better scenario to have Andlauer in there. Someone that, you know, understands ownership. He was a part, you know, minority owner of the Habs. And so, you know, this is not, nothing about this is new to him. Uh, and yeah, I just, I just think it's a very, got to be a very exciting time to be a Senators fan right now. It definitely is. And I, I can't wait for, for next year to start and we'll see what to bring it, but, uh, it'll be definitely a fun year next year and hopefully they make the playoffs. You've asked, I feel like everyone, every analyst on TSN about Pierre-Luc Dubois. So I want to ask you, what do you make of Pierre-Luc Dubois like this off season? Do you think he goes to the Habs? What, what do you think happens there with Pierre-Luc? Where do you think he goes? Because it seems as though he's uh, definitely done in Winnipeg. Yeah, he, you know, the, the that was sort of the consensus for the last two years that he wanted to go to Montreal. But, you know, sort of the recent reports are that other teams are being very aggressive in trying to pursue him. And the LA Kings keep getting mentioned as, as one of those teams. And, you know, yes, he apparently wants to go to Montreal, but it would be hard for me to believe that if he got traded to L.A., he would have that hard of a time with it. They're a really good team. They definitely have the assets to trade to, to Winnipeg to get them. Uh, so I could absolutely see him there. And it's okay. You know, it is what it is. At Winnipeg, it's the hardest GM job in the league, right? Nobody uh, wants to play there, apparently. You know, they've got – everybody's got – you know, and that's every Canadian team, by the way. Like, every Canadian team, one thing that's going to come out over the last year is that basically every Canadian team except for Toronto, and in a lot of case, cases, Toronto included, they're on most players' no trade lists, right? And so it's hard, man. Like, you know, if you're Kevin Chevel Dayoff and you're like, okay, I want this player for Dubois and 
Rob Blake says, you know what, I would do that, but he's got a no trade and you're on the list. Like, you know, it's yeah. it's horrible, right? It, it's it's not in, it's not a level playing field is what it is. It's just not a level playing field. So that's what makes uh, the fact that, you know, Shovel Dayoff has done as good a job as he has quite remarkable. Um, but, yeah, I could easily see him going to, to L.A. I could see Blake Wheeler being bought out. And I think that's a likely scenario. Connor Hellebach, I think, you know, teams are – Question whether they want to sign him for nine and a half million, but I truly believe a team will step up and pick him up because he's one of the maybe three difference making, yeah. one of the goalies in the league that legitimately can steal games, right? And so, you know, to me, it's crazy that you would be put off by contract demands knowing that this guy, you know, last year he flat out kept Winnipeg in it right until the end. So, um, and then Mark Scheifele's the wild card, you know, but it seems like he's likely on the way out as well. So yeah, it's going to be a, going to be a very interesting off season in Winnipeg, but, uh, Kevin Cheveldayoff's very meticulous and, and doesn't, you know, doesn't allow himself to be pushed into things he doesn't want to do. Right. So who knows, you know, maybe, maybe some of those guys will still be with the team when, uh, when the fall comes around, whether they like it or not. Um, before I let you go, I just want to ask you kind of a bigger hockey question about the Stanley Cup finals, obviously Vegas won, but in your mind, how good is it for the, the NHL and, and really for hockey in general that it was two non-traditional markets in Vegas and Panthers in the finals? And I think they had maybe the lowest ratings in, in a long time. Yeah, I don't think it was great. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're asking how good is it for the league, how good is it for hockey? I mean, the ratings bore it out, right? Like, and that's the thing I think, you know, Gary Bettman's hell-bent on keeping the Coyotes in Arizona for one simple reason, and I, I understand what the reason is, and it's that it's one of the fastest-growing cities in the United States, maybe the fastest-growing city, and one of the biggest media markets in the United States. But the problem is it's not a hockey market. So you can have a hockey, an NHL team in Tokyo, the biggest city on the planet, right? But if there aren't enough hockey fans there, they're not going to watch the hockey, right? So I get the market size argument, but at some point you have to decide what's a hockey market and what's not a hockey market. And, you know, Vegas, Florida, these are, I don't know what the right word would be to describe them, but when when we lived in Los Angeles, L.A. has more history of the hockey market than a lot of American cities do. And the year we moved there, the Kings won the cup. Yeah. And I would listen to sport, local sports radio in LA and all the hosts would say, all right, I guess we got to learn who all the Kings are now. Like nobody <laughs> wow. in LA. And I mean, nobody is talking about the LA Kings on sports radio, you know, around the water cooler. No one except wow. for, the 17,000 people who go to the games and they do, they fill the building. They have a great fan base. The Kings have a great fan base, but it's just <laughs> the people going to those games and watching on TV and their ratings this past year for TV were about 30,000 a game. Wow. So, wow. you know, my, my point is that that's a good market and that's a better market than Vegas. That's a better market than Florida. And it's still, they still struggle to get attention in their own market in a city where the Lakers are the Kings, the Dodgers are the other Kings, everybody else is whatever, you know, and, and that's just the way it is. And that's the way it's always going to be. And, 
So I think that's the struggle for the for the NHLs. I didn't realize until I moved to the states how truly marginal a sport it is mm-hmm. down there. You know, like yes, it's one of the four major sports on paper, <laughs> but the reality is none of those debate shows on ESPN or FS1 are ever ever talking hockey and even espn who got the hockey um broadcast rights back last year when they started um suddenly there were hockey highlights on sports center down there and they were talking hockey and i was like wow okay okay and this year that's fallen right off the cliff yeah. right like that that's it because just they're i get it like their their viewers aren't craving hockey minnesota wild columbus Blue Jackets highlights in January. They're taught they want to talk about the NFL at that point, right? So so that's the eternal struggle that hockey will face. And I know the the league continues to make billions and that's why Gary's been around so long. Is he's made those owners so much money and made them richer than they already are. But has he really grown the game? I would I would question that argument personally. Well, Jay, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I just want to give you the floor. Is there anything at SportsCenter or at TSN that you want to plug that uh, people should watch out for? Well, still doing the show every night, midnight Eastern on TSN, and uh, it's looping every morning. So if you haven't watched this for a while, tune in. You might like what you see. Well, thank you so much, Jay. I definitely watch it as much as I can, and I really appreciate you uh, taking the time today and uh, excited for, for what's next to come for you and the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me and uh, all the best to you in the future. Thanks so much, Jay. I really appreciate it.